Whether sanctuary means the same thing today as the center of Christian worship has in the past. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What do you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Cain in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. Right up front, a little house cleaning. Walk the Earth can be found on Stitcher Smart Radio. It shares the feed with inappropriate conversations. So if you wanted to look up episodes of Walk the Earth on Stitcher, just look for inappropriate conversations. The same can be said for iTunes or other methods of podcatching, including straight to the website at www.inappropriateconversations.org. These shows intermingle there as they're posted to the same RSS feed. Likewise, I put information related to both podcasts on Twitter. There I am, at IC underscore Greg. And again, there's interactions on Twitter for both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth. Where I've made a divergent course is with Facebook. Facebook has a page for Inappropriate Conversations and has for much longer than Walk the Earth. But there's also a Walk the Earth Facebook page. And that's kind of where I want to start today. That, in addition to noting that I can be reached via email at... IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. If I go to the Facebook page for Walk the Earth, I want to just talk about some of the things that I've posted up there and the thoughts that I've had kind of going through my head the last few weeks, getting ready for a conversation about sanctuary, because this is actually pretty important to me. The Facebook group Unvirtuous Abbey, which is both a faithful and a satirical look at questions related to the church today put up something recently that I think speaks volumes. It basically says, Lord, we pray for people who have no place in their church for Caitlyn Jenner, but all the time in room and a pew waiting for Josh Duggar. Not suggesting that anybody should be held by the church in a state of perpetual unforgiveness, but just to call out the irony of how quick some Christians are to forgive somebody who has molested at least five girls and engaged in a cover-up about those crimes versus somebody who is wrestling with uh, personal sexual and gender identity, the person who is uh, dealing with a real emotional turmoil and upheaval, seems to take the scorn of the church much more bluntly than, in this case, somebody who has actually committed one of the more heinous crimes that we can imagine. The same people who fall on the conservative side of the political spectrum and are often very, very tempted to suggest that all pedophiles should be put to death uh, would be quick to cite, well, hey, he was only 14 at the time, but I don't know, a 14-year-old boy and a 5-year-old girl? At some point, we have to have a much more open dialogue about the things the church is willing to tolerate if prominent, well-known Christians commit the crimes versus the things that we're unwilling to tolerate that aren't crimes at all. So it got me thinking about what I've been putting on the Walk the Earth Facebook page lately, and I thought, well, let's walk through some of it. Because all of these, I think, can be tied back to this question of the concept of sanctuary. One of them, going back to June 2nd, was uh, sharing a NakedPastor.com post. Now, I'm a big fan of NakedPastor.com. I describe it as badly drawn cartoons. That's unfair. I don't have the skill to do it this way. They're intentionally minimalist cartoons. 
that are used to tell a thought-provoking story or raise thought-provoking questions. And I've been sharing naked pastor uh, images and posts for quite some time, going all the way back to before Walk the Earth had a Facebook page. In fact, doing it on inappropriate conversations or even on my personal Facebook account. This one was about the debate between R.C. Sproul Jr. and Rob Bell. I think most people would recognize that Rob Bell falls well onto the progressive side of the spectrum. And R.C. Sproul qualifies as somebody who's part of the holiness movement, uh, a very conservative version of Christianity, not necessarily a politically active one. So I've got a little bit of room, a little bit of time for R.C. Sproul, but not as much as I used to because of things like this. Sproul declaring that uh, Rob Bell is going to hell, and the first, or at least prominent among the reasons is that Rob Bell is willing to have a tolerant attitude toward homosexuals and feels that they may have a place in the church. To me, this is a fairly obvious concept. Of course, everyone has a place in the church. But to someone who's obsessed with holiness, who is part of this holiness movement, it becomes a very big deal if the wrong kind of people become part of the body of Christ, because then the body of Christ might get diseased by their presence. That sort of mentality. What I said on Walk the Earth's Facebook page was the biggest irony, and this would-be debate, and Sproul's conviction about what the Bible teaches about gay marriage is, well, that's it. I mean, Sproul believes that Jesus taught that homosexuality was wrong and evil and so forth and so on. The accurate answer is that the Bible doesn't speak to the concept of gay marriage at all, and Jesus least of all. So did Sproul and those like him see the irony in expressing a commitment to nothing? Because if I hitch my wagon to what the Bible says about homosexuals in committed, loving relationships being married to each other, well, the Bible is more than just strangely silent. The other one, of course, is the Caitlyn Jenner story. And, and I posted quickly, really, to the Walk the Earth page while holding back and kind of letting the story play out from an inappropriate conversations perspective, waiting to see if there was a political perspective that I needed to share. That didn't happen right away. Uh, sadly, it didn't take long, but it didn't happen right away. Now, my perspective was the meme that said, keep calm and love your transgender friends. When I posted it, though, I added to it, saying, if you don't have any transgendered friends, parenthetically, if you don't have any that you know of, because you very well may have some and just not know it, then keep calm and refuse to hate any transgender strangers. I have friends who have mastered this, but sadly, I have friends going all the way back to junior high school who have failed miserably this week. I am praying for them and for all who see their, their lack of thoughts, not their thoughts, but their lack of thoughts, because this ties into all this, this idiocy about whether or not it's wrong that a transgender person should be on the cover of a magazine or wrong that people should refer to the bravery of, of coming out about it or being honest or uh, questions of what courage is, as if courage only means military accomplishment. Very frustrating. Then going further, uh, it, closer to the current day, as a matter of fact, I would make the argument, going back to R.C. Sproul, that the biggest problem in the church today is probably Christians ignoring what Jesus explicitly taught and instead replacing his commands both of those commands, with words that they put into his holy mouth. And it gets worse. If we're going to ignore Jesus' command to love God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind and love our neighbor as we love ourselves, if we're going to replace those words with things that Jesus never said, and based on the way he lived his life, probably, certainly never meant, 
Jesus didn't have this attitude about we're not allowed to mingle with these people. We're only allowed to mingle with those people. That's not what Jesus demonstrated time and time and time again. It is completely inconsistent with what he explicitly said in the Sermon on the Mount, for example. Jesus, if anything, taught us that we ought to be going where people are hurting. We should be going to the people that we perceive as being lost or confused. We should be interacting with those that the societal structures, political structures, and religious leadership have shunned. That is what Jesus explicitly said to do. And the church, by pretending that Jesus said to do exactly the opposite, or that there's something wrong with the progressive wing of Christianity for doing, well, exactly what Jesus said, it makes you, well, it gives me pause, and it makes me wonder, who would we grant sanctuary to as Christians today? If you just if you just played a, a randomizer game and just picked a church at random and walked into its doors, are they more likely to provide sanctuary to Josh Duggar if some of the actions that his family has taken lately opened up a question of a racketeering conspiracy and tied all the way back to the crimes that he committed so long ago they're past the statute of limitations, but perhaps an argument could begin to be getting made that his family's activities are actually a continuation of those same crimes in in the form of a conspiracy to cover up those crimes, to circumvent the Freedom of Information Act, to circumvent the First Amendment, to to lie very publicly on a very public pulpit. Uh, Would we provide sanctuary to Josh Ducker? Maybe. Probably. We could. Would we provide sanctuary to prevent Caitlyn Jenner from feeling the full force of violence from an extreme radical right version of the American society and even the church in America? I don't know the answer to that. And I think I should know the answer. The answer should be obvious. Jesus gives us clear direction on kind of what we what we should be imitating. So... I think the last thing that I'll say kind of on this question uh, of this particular issue is a quote that I saw today, just today. In fact, I posted it this morning before recording on the Walk the Earth Facebook page from a pastor that I've never heard speak before called Will Johnson. Uh, Such a common name that it made me wonder, should I be doing an internet search to try to find out if maybe maybe I wouldn't be comfortable with Will Johnson. Maybe Will Johnson's a raging homophobe. Maybe he's got some criminal activity in his past that he's covered up the way the Duggar family is covering up theirs. Maybe he's one of those guys who suggested that his church spend several hundred thousand dollars buying him an expensive stretch Cadillac or a limo. I don't know any of that, but I will, I will tell you that this 10 minute clip of a sermon, I, I think had a lot of really good value in it, especially around this particular conversation. Now, he doesn't get directly to the concept of sanctuary, but he does get into the notion of who is a true friend and who is not a true friend. And from the Bible, quoting passages, and within Christianity, how should we be doing this neighbor thing? The quote that I latched onto says this, a true friend will enter into your experience. That's Johnson. My answer to it is, there are so many Christians today who fail this standard, choosing instead to insist that you change your experience first. We, speaking as a collective we, the entire body of Christ, we insist that they must they change their sinful ways, depending on what the behavior is, which may or may not even be sinful, but we want them to change those ways anyway because they're icky to us. They need to change their ways, and if they don't do it, then we can't welcome them into the church. That's not true friendship. 
And it's certainly not how Jesus said we should interact with our neighbors. I even took it a step further, suggesting that this uh, this political right, the religious right, the evangelical church today, would be more than happy to help the man beat up by robbers in the parable of the Good Samaritan, as long as he wasn't a Samaritan. Or maybe, to use the analogy right, if they're the Good Samaritan, he would have to be a Samaritan first. He would have to renounce his Judaism and become a Samaritan, or I can't help him. Because that is what we say, whether we like it or not, as a church, that is the truth behind what we say to people. We tell people that you can't be part of this church or you can't be actively involved in ministry as long as you're gay. As if we're telling people they have to clean up the things about their lives that we don't like before we can engage in this fellowship with them. Because this aspect of church membership has as much to do with fellowship as it does to do with creed. There's a friendship angle here. And to go back to the quote from Johnson, true friendship means somebody who will enter into your experience. They don't, they don't have to agree with you, even. They certainly don't have to share a common experience. And yet we get this talk from people. And I think a lot of it goes back to Christians from the 1950s and 60s who never overcame the civil rights movement. They were totally okay with stopping violence against poor people and black people. But they didn't really like the idea of integration at all, because there seems to be this notion. I mean, if you look at a demographic map of the United States of America, it is we still look like a country where there's black communities and white communities. We still look that way. That's what the demographics tell us, that those communities may be closer together than they were before. But if one of these blocks is blue and one of these blocks is red, there's not enough purple on my map. There's places where blue and red are butting up against each other. And guess what? In communities like St. Louis, Missouri, and Baltimore, Maryland, and Cleveland, Ohio, those are flashpoints for violence. So we haven't done a good enough job. Going all the way back to the very first Inappropriate Conversations recording I made on the go-forward format of that show. Inappropriate Conversations 1 was introducing the idea of doing a podcast, and Inappropriate Conversations 2 was about introducing the concept of different drummer. But Inappropriate Conversations 3 was based around the idea of come out and play. It was based around an idea of integration and sort of a sad acknowledgement that too often when you draw borders between people, those borders don't create safe havens. They create the location for the flashpoints of violence. That's, That's me speaking from five years ago before there was such a thing as a Walk the Earth podcast. And I will tell you that most often when you think of the idea of sanctuary, Sanctuary isn't elsewhere. It isn't airlifting people and putting them in some other place where we don't have to think about them or look at them or worry about them. It's, sanctuary tends to be embedded. It's a place in the midst of challenges, violence, struggle, life and death issues, turmoil. It tends to be in the midst of all that, at least in the concept of what we might call political sanctuary or human sanctuary or refugee sanctuary. And I'll get to that concept in a minute, but but I will say that most often when we think of the term sanctuary being used that way, up until maybe about the 1980s, we were still talking about the church. We were often talking about the church building, as a matter of fact. It's only recently that we've begun to treat human refugees the way we treat an animal sanctuary or a plant sanctuary. We're treating people like wildlife when we do remove them to that part of town, uh, creating a 
shantytown concept, if you will, not unlike what was dramatized in a science fiction way in the movie District 9. If I remember to come back to it, I'll talk about that perspective of saying, first, if we can get our heads around what sanctuary is. Second, can we deal with the fact that that sanctuary should be right here with us, right here among us? As Jesus said in, in the Gospels, the, the poor will always be with you. But by with you, he meant among you. And that can be the poor in spirit, the poor in financial resources, the poor in health, the poor in political power. Uh, using the term poor very, very broadly here. The in trouble, the endangered, for want of a better word. So I've been wrestling a little bit with this concept of a true friend will enter into your experience. Not because I struggle with it, because I think that's how I've tried to live my life. It's because I know too many people who struggle with it. A recent blog post I put on uh, inappropriateconversations.org dealt with exactly that idea of saying, you know, I was part of a very close-knit group of people in high school because we were part of an organization, part of an extracurricular group. Say, for example, the marching band. And we got along brilliantly in that context. I, I would guess that there was more conflict, more arguments, more struggle in the cohesion of other groups than the marching band. The marching band had a really good, it had a good connection, a good fellowship going. Um, it, it's not hard to imagine why sports teams, with all of the, the athletic energy and, and, well, frankly, for men's sports groups, testosterone flowing through it, that you're going to have conflict, even fights. And arguments in the newspaper office, arguments about decisions in the yearbook. But the marching band was a very close-knit group. But now that I'm you know, 30, 30 years or so beyond that experience, and looking backward, I'm seeing things posted on Facebook and Twitter by those old, old friends that make it sound to me like I couldn't trust the safety of other, of our mutual old friends if their fate was being decided by this first set of old friends. These are the round them up and throw away the key type folks, not over necessarily criminal behavior, sometimes over stuff like Caitlyn Jenner's decision. I will say it bluntly. If I had a friend in the marching band, which I, if I do, I'm unaware of it. Again, keep calm and try not to hate your transgendered strangers because some of those strangers may be your friends. If I had a friend from high school who was part of that group, part of this, this close knit group of friends who was transgendered and announced to the world and thereby to all of us that he or she was going through some sort of transition. I can't trust that other of my old friends would provide any sort of metaphorical or real sanctuary for that person. As a matter of fact, I can't be sure that that person might not need sanctuary as a form of protection from their old friends. There's a rift in the fellowship within the church, the body of Christ, the church universal, as if we keep ripping off the corners of the page where we don't like this person and we don't like that person and this person does things I can't tolerate and I've got a Bible verse that tells me that that person is completely unacceptable. And rather than loving our enemies, turning the other cheek, walking the extra mile, seeking the least of these, we keep voting people off of our island, not even having the wherewithal is the church to understand that that's the culture talking to us. That's an episode of TV's Survivor. That's not the gospel. It's not what Jesus told us to do. And although I don't know that I would go so far as to say Jesus explicitly told us to provide sanctuary for the poor among us, 
it's not hard to stitch together that approach based on the things that he explicitly said. Unlike R.C. Sproul, who really wishes and perhaps even believes that Jesus said no gays are going to heaven, the quote's not in any of the Gospels. It's not really even any of the, the false Gospels or the apocryphal writings. It's, it's not there. But loving your enemies, uh, shielding and defending the least of these, that's certainly there and explicitly there. It's a go and do likewise moment. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's the story of the great judgment and reaching out to the least of these. It's the last words of Jesus in the gospel according to Matthew, where he tells us to go and make disciples. And sometimes to make disciples, you've got to protect people from violence first. That's where we can come into this concept of sanctuary. So what is sanctuary in this context? And I don't mind spending 15 minutes right up front talking about how I think about it, because I'm a privileged American living in the heart of the heart of the country. And I don't have people who are uh, fleeing because their parents were killed in religious violence in the Gaza Strip or somewhere in Africa. For me, the people that I see who are in danger, the people who are being, at the very least, marginalized, if not actually threatened, are often as not having threatened because of sexual identity and gender identity questions. So how do we understand sanctuary to provide sanctuary? Where we should, or maybe to answer the question, does sanctuary mean the same thing today as the center of Christian worship as it has in the past? And I'm going to say the answer to that question is sadly no. Sadly no. It really shouldn't be no, but it is. And I would say this is a change that's happened in my lifetime. We'll get to it. But first, definition. Wikipedia describes sanctuary this way. as a word described from the Latin sanctuarium which is like the words ending in the suffix meaning a container for something to keep inside, and sanctus meaning holy, so a place for holy things. And the meaning was extended to places of holiness or safety, and also a sacred place for worship. In Europe, Wikipedia says, Christian churches were sometimes built on land considered to be part of a holy spot, perhaps where a miracle or a martyrdom was believed to have taken place, or where a holy person was buried. St. Peter's Basilica in Rome being the best example of this. But Benjamin Corey on the podcast That God Show recently talked about a trip he made to Jordan, to the non-Israel side of the Holy Land. And his observation from that trip was, among other things, that far too often on the, um, on the Israel side of the border, all of the holiest sites of Christianity in particular have a church sitting on them. So you're not really going to the believed place where Jesus was born in Bethlehem and seeing the place, you're seeing a church there. Whereas in Jordan, a lot of the really holy places have been kept preserved. You might, I say might because I don't know, I haven't been there, be able to climb to the mountaintop where Moses looked over the Holy Land but died before he could enter in himself and have an experience that's not terribly different from what Moses experienced. It's still a mountaintop overviewing a valley of the Holy Land. And there's not a church sitting on top of it. But the early church, Christianity in particular, both Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, but uh, maybe more Catholicism, had a habit of putting churches on what were considered to be holy sites. There's another concept of sanctuary, though, and that's actually not just the place, but within the place. Not just the building, but within the building, a part of the building. And that would be, for Protestant churches, uh, the sanctuary would be the entire center of worship, the place where worship services are conducted. 
But for Roman Catholic churches and some Lutheran and Anglican churches, it might just be the area immediately around the altar. So a part of the sanctuary. So you might have a pastor or priest speaking from a pulpit off to the side, but when he approaches the altar and arranges the uh, the elements for communion, in the Roman Catholic tradition, those elements of communion are God himself. Jesus is in those elements, making the presence of Jesus holy. Therefore, the altar is holy. The area around the altar is holy. And sanctuary might be used to refer to that, that concept of holy of holies. This is a Jewish idea from the Jewish temple, holy of holies. But that's how it ties in to the oldest forms of Christianity, having that same concept. So it's enough to understand that depending on which denomination you're looking at, sanctuary can mean lots of different things. It can mean the entire property upon which a church was built. It can mean the church itself and all of its functional uh, rooms. It can mean just the place where worship is done. That's where my experience comes in. Having uh, grown up in the Protestant church primarily, for us the sanctuary was a sometimes very large room with lots of pews to accommodate lots of seating. And even if it was a, a, bu- a building big enough where that sanctuary had uh, seats for 500 people, all 500 people sitting in any corner of that room in the church, including where the choir sat, including where the pastor spoke, including the altar area where the communion elements and candles might be, all of that was called the sanctuary. But that's not necessarily true throughout Christianity. But that's not really what I mean by sanctuary. When I ask the question of whether or not sanctuary as a concept means the same thing today, I'm still willing to call it the center of Christian worship. I just don't think it means the same thing as it used to. See, because even if sanctuary as the center of Christian worship is just the altar, or even just the elements on the altar, it doesn't matter. Because sanctuary was still this notion of being close to that place where safety could be conferred. So if it's, if it's the altar, if it's the entire room inside a church, if it's the church itself, it's the property of the church, for me the question is, how does that line up with the notion of human sanctuary? So, carrying on with Wikipedia, when referring to the prosecution of crimes, sanctuary can mean one of the following. It can mean church sanctuary, political sanctuary, the right of asylum, or political asylum. And that's where things get a little bit interesting, because it still continues to define church sanctuary as a sacred place such as a church, in which fugitives formerly were immune to arrest, recognized by English law from the 4th to the 17th century. Political sanctuary is this notion of immunity to arrest afforded by a sovereign authority. The United Nations has expanded the definition of political to include race, nationality, religion, political opinions, and membership or participation in any particular social group or social activities. People seeking political sanctuary typically do so by asking a sovereign authority for asylum. So in the first example, you're asking the church to take you and shield you and protect you under the church's authority. And in the second one, you're asking a government or you know, trans-governmental agency to do so. See, this notion of a right of asylum goes way back. It goes back to the earliest part of the 7th century AD. And there's example of, examples of it going all the way into 1623. Um, maybe 1623 is when that system of asylum was formally abolished in England by James I. Political asylum has other examples. What I wanted to get to, though, was in the modern age. Because as recently as the 1980s, 
select universities, campuses, and other sites within American cities decided that they would provide a formal form of asylum uh, called Sanctuary Cities to migrants from civil wars in Central America. And no, those Central, uh, Central American wars in the 1980s were in many ways propped up, propagated, supported, armed to the teeth by the United States government. In some cases, we wanted those countries to overthrow their governments and their leaders. And in other cases, we were arming governments and leaders, even fairly hideous dictators, because we didn't like the politics of the people who were trying to overthrow them. So the United States of America had a role to play in a lot of that civil unrest. But 440 cities in the United States had been declared sanctuary cities uh, as late as 1987, open to migrants. So from 1980, according to Wikipedia, continuing into the 2000s, there have been instances of churches providing, quote, sanctuary, unquote, for short periods to migrants facing deportation in countries like Germany, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Norway, Australia, Canada, and the United States. So this notion of a sanctuary movement, uh, there's allegedly 600,000 people in the United States who have at least one family member in danger of deportation, and there's currently a sanctuary movement that's designed to figure out how to protect families from being ripped apart by the policies, the often shifting and changing policies, of the United States government. So I mentioned that there's been a shift in the meaning of sanctuary, and I think it's right here. If you look just in the past couple of years, a group of young people, teens, preteens, children even, younger than preteens in other words, were coming to the United States across the southwestern American border by bus or coach to escape what had been a, a clear and present danger, a threat of violence and murder inside, in this case, Honduras. There may have been other examples. And the American church, and I use that term loosely, met them at the U.S. border. They met them at the U.S. border not to greet them there and provide sanctuary, not to collaborate with the United States government in finding a plan to guarantee their safety, but also create a roadmap for returning them to their homeland. Instead, they met them with signs that say, you're not welcome here, get out, go back where you came from. The exact opposite of sanctuary. I think there's been documented cases that I've seen of at least five of those children who, upon returning back to their homeland, were murdered. Their concern about the threat of deadly violence, was real. Their call for sanctuary was truly necessary. And sometime between the 1980s, when churches in the United States recognized the danger posed by Central American government's policies, but also U.S. government policies, created a need for us to protect people from the threat of deadly violence. And we opened up our church doors, and in many cases our city halls and universities, to provide that temporary protection. Somewhere between then and now, a span of less than 30 years, the church in America has changed. Now, it's always difficult when you refer to the church as a concept. I got a couple of walk-the-earth questions just trying to define what we even mean by the word church. But, and I don't want to imply that there are no members of the American Christian faithful who have a very different and much more traditional view about what it means to care for the least of these. But what I will say is, that the voices that greeted that bus from Honduras at the U.S. border was undeniably a voice of people who perceived themselves to be Christianity, who perceived America to be a Christian nation, and were very comfortable with them being the mouthpiece for that Christian nation. 
So it's really hard to make an argument that the church in America didn't speak. It's true that if we were a parliamentary entity, this concept of church, that it's not like there's a 100% government here. Uh, there are mixed opinions and coalitions and so forth. But the leading voice that day, the voice that was able to pass what turned out to be a deadly judgment against those children, was the voice that has really no tolerance whatsoever for the concept of sanctuary. I'm not saying that I want our churches to suddenly become equipped as hostile-type situations where they all have apartments in the basement and showers and places for homeless people to stay in the in the coldest parts of the northern part of the country and the hottest parts in the southern part of our country where when weather conditions can prove deadly for those who don't have shelter that the church should provide the shelter. I'm just saying I wouldn't be opposed to it. I'm not suggesting we go back to that 1980s model or even the model centuries earlier where the church was at all times prepared and equipped to be a place where people could live for a significant amount of time while you waited for a dictator to die off or be overthrown. Because if that person who had an opposition position to the current reigning leadership stepped foot outside the church doors, they'd be arrested and tortured and killed. I'm just saying I'm not opposed to the idea. For me, the real question is, what changed? Because regardless of what may happen in the shifting sands of politics, there needs to be a standard that we do not fall below. That, fa- that standard needs to be caring for people who are sick and hungry and thirsty and homeless and poor and hospitalized and people who would be imprisoned, especially, in my mind, if they would be imprisoned, tortured, and or murdered for nothing more than what they believe or perhaps nothing more than whom they love. Let me wrap this up with a seemingly unrelated observation about the formation of mission statements. If you're part of corporate America, and in my case, you know, part of retail, you get asked from time to time to form a mission statement, a vision statement, a set of corporate values and some, you know, some key strategic pillars and all sorts of that kinds of concepts. And so I was reading about that, just trying to make sure that if I'm going to be part of an organization that is rethinking some of its mission statements and some of its formal policies, uh, trying to reestablish what our vision and values are, that I might want to have an understanding kind of deep-seated understanding of what some of the do's and don'ts are. And I found an article that I thought was really, really interesting, talking about the forming of a mission statement. And what the article said was this. If the opposite of your mission statement is so obviously wrong that you would never do it, then you don't have a very good mission statement. Our mission can't be to increase sales, because obviously we would never have... It would be idiotic to suggest that our, that our mission might be to decrease sales. The mission statement needs to be something where it's at least possible that you could choose to go another route and get another result. It needs to have that sort of challenge to it, that you can ask what I often refer to as the logical extreme. What would it mean to go in the other direction? So when I have an idea, and that idea meets with opposition, I actually challenge the person who's opposing me to outline for me what would happen if we did it exactly the opposite way. And if their vision isn't closer to mine than they think it is. Because sometimes the difference of opinion that we have is just a slightly subtle shift. It's the use of a word where we both interpret the word in slightly different ways. Where maybe the word carries a weight that it shouldn't have. And if we both agreed to use a different term or a different expression, it might be less problematic for one or the other one of us. So in this case, to go back to maybe R.C. Sproul and his point of view about 
Rob Bell is going to hell because Rob Bell thinks that gay people should be allowed to participate in Christian ministry. Or in this case, I think specifically, it's the reaction to same-sex marriage. I kind of ignore the issue of same-sex marriage by and large because my focus tends to be almost solely about equal rights, equal protection under the law. And if you get there with the use of the term marriage or with the use of some other term, I'm totally fine with. I think there's way too much of an emotional knee-jerk reaction to the terminology. Again, maybe we should find a different set of terminologies. Maybe what's happening that some very conservative people in the church find frustrating or even bewildering is that a lot of people in mainline Christianity have realized that if somebody is in a committed 30-year partnership with another person, that and that that person falls very ill, like intensive care ill, that the person that they love more than anyone in the world, and the person who loves them more than anyone in the world, ought to be able to be in that hospital bedside situation with each other, without fear of being told you can't be here because you're not family. We've made the word family in the religious right a bad word. I hear the word family, especially capitalized as part of the name of an organization, and I almost instantly shudder. I almost instantly equate the word family with politically based hatred. This is perhaps the work of Satan in the world, taking the word love and transforming it into hate the sin, and taking the word family and making it also something ugly. So because I'm so focused on how important it is that people be treated you know, with justice and with kindness and with mercy that I don't get wound up in the terminology, but I think perhaps R.C. Sproul Jr. did get really wound up in the terminology of the word marriage because I'm part of a Protestant religious tradition where marriage is valued and esteemed and important, but it is not a sacrament. I'm not a Roman Catholic. I'm not that particular branch of Lutheran. So it, it carries less weight for me. But all the same, I often ask people, I said, well, Let's go to the opposite extreme. If this notion of gay people being treated equally is is wrong, what's the alternative? What do you suggest that we do? And that's where you run into trouble. Because you end up in a place where these people, ultimately, if they have to actually outline a fully vetted, completely structured worldview, and not worldview in the cheap, shorthand manner that we use it today, I mean Every single nth detail, what do you do with this? What do you do with that? How do you manage this? How do you manage that? How do you react to this? All of it detailed out. You get to some very dark, dark places. For example, the Duggar family, the woman of the relationship, the mother in particular, has been very outspoken against proposed laws in uh, cities like Fayetteville, Arkansas, and in the state that would suggest that maybe we should not be engaged in the act of firing people for no other reason that we do not like who they live with or we do not like their sexual orientation. Her attitude is that gays not only can be fired for no other reason than being gay, but perhaps we ought to be rooting all of those people out of our organizations. Maybe uh, I don't want to go to that store because that store has a gay guy who works behind the counter. That, But then I begin saying, if maybe we should be judging employees by the quality of their work, then maybe we end up in a different place. If you're measuring the behavior and the activities in your workplace based on work-related results, then maybe you end up in a spot where you should not be firing one of your best employees just because she happens to be a lesbian. Or we wouldn't be saying that if, if Bruce Jenner, becoming Caitlyn Jenner, was happening in somebody who wasn't already a well-known 
celebrity and athlete, but instead was just the person who worked, you know, at the fast food place as the assistant manager on the night shift, that maybe that person shouldn't be immediately fired for no other reason than finally coming to terms with who they are or having some issue grappling with who they are. So my question is, where does this all, where does this end if we go the Duggars route? Suddenly you've got a group of people who in theory cannot be hired anywhere. Unless what they're talking about is more of this segregation stuff. If this is just another way of saying, hey, we really regret the time that the Brown versus Board of Education brought all those black people into the schools that my kids are going to go to. So I'm going to homeschool them so they don't have to be around those black people. Because I think there should be black businesses and white businesses, uh, black churches and white churches. And just extrapolate that over into sexual orientation. There should be gay businesses and straight businesses so that I don't have to worry about buying my cake at a place where a gay person might be doing the cooking. Is it that? Because that's really ugly, too. But that's actually, for all of its hatefulness and ugliness, preferable to the complete lack of sanctuary represented by the other idea. That these gay people just have to pretend to be straight. Otherwise, we're going to make sure they starve to death. They can't be employed, so they can't get a job. And the fact that they can't get a job is because they were terminated for good reason. Therefore, they can't get unemployment. Therefore, they're basically on the street. But we're going to make sure that those homeless people aren't allowed on the street. We're going to put cement spikes under bridges and overpasses so that they can't hide for shelter there. We're going to press charges against churches in places like northern Illinois, who have the audacity to bring homeless people into their sanctuary in, on nights when the weather is below minus 20 degrees. Because we'd rather see these people freeze, even freeze to death in extreme discomfort, than find sanctuary inside the sanctuary of a church. Because maybe if the weather's really bad here, all those homeless people have to go somewhere else. And maybe all those gay people have to go somewhere else. There's this dream you hear. And I hear both on the right side and the left side of the political spectrum. This dream that everybody who disagrees with me and everybody who thinks differently from me and everybody who isn't the same as me will just leave this country and go off and form their own country on an island somewhere. Got to tell you, folks, that is the exact opposite idea of sanctuary. Sanctuary was where people went to flee inside the place where they lived, where their family lived, where their ancestors lived. They weren't being asked to run somewhere else to hide from a violent dictatorship that has suddenly taken over their country. They were created a place to hide within their country. You don't stop being an American just because you're gay. You don't stop being a Christian just because you're gay. And we don't know anything about the sexual orientation of Caitlyn Jenner. We just understand that there's been questions about gender identity there. But I go back to the original question asked by the Unvirtuous Abbey Facebook page. Would some of our churches be more willing to provide sanctuary to Josh Duggar than Caitlyn Jenner? And what does that say about us? I would ask the question differently, perhaps even more harshly. Are there some churches who are unwilling to provide sanctuary to anyone under any circumstances ever? That's my carpet. Those are my pews. This is my sacred place where I come to worship. And I can't have any of those people messing any of that up. Lord help us. I pray that this is not true. I pray that my perceptions are just a little bit, or maybe even more than a little bit harsh. But I think it's a factual statement that a handful, or maybe well more than a handful, of Honduran children were murdered in the last two years 
at the hands of violent influences within their country because Christians in the United States of America are just done with the idea of sanctuary. And what does that mean about the holiness of the space? If a church is built on a place deemed holy because somebody was martyred there, creating a sanctuary to prevent that kind of thing from happening again, if we are now so indifferent to it happening again, that we might actually, on some level, as privileged American Christians, be the cause of it. This gives me pause. If and as you are led, please join me in prayer. Father God, I really struggle with this idea of sanctuary. I've been part of a church and left a church because it was too good at locking its doors, too good at making sure it was drawing a line between who is welcome and who's not welcome. And I thank you, Lord, that I've found a congregation that truly does have completely open doors in a completely public space and a very open attitude to any and all who might come. But I think all of us still struggle with this concept of sanctuary. What we have to give up, Lord, in our own privileges, the cost of our health care to make sure others can have health care is one example. Worrying too much over the methods of providing safety for refugees and in some cases not making refugees safe because we're arguing about it. Lord, help us to have a clarity of vision. Help us to see through our base instincts and our fears and the political rhetoric and dialogue. Help us to connect better, Lord Jesus, with what you have said. To see through the people who put words in your mouth that you never said. And to focus instead much more narrowly on the things you actually said and taught and demonstrated. Because Lord, all of us, me as much as anyone, find our sanctuary in our relationship with you. Lord, I believe you've told us to go and do likewise. And Lord, I believe that means that I'm supposed to extend the sanctuary that we've created by your grace to others, especially others who have no other home, metaphorically or actually. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions.
Next on Walk the Earth, whether a sense of patriotism invalidates the separation of church and state or similar founding principles in the United States of America. Thanks for listening.